episode 8 of the Water Break podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. This episode, we're going to discuss the combining of microscopy and DNA analysis of wastewater. Our guests today are Ryan Hennessy, a water microscopy and microbiology consultant with Midwest Contract Operations and a Wisconsin wastewater operator, and Dr. Paul Campbell, who specializes in molecular biology and biochemistry work at AstroBios. We've had a couple of podcasts on microscopy, but I am really interested to talk to you both about adding a new layer of understanding of wastewater with DNA analysis. So thank you for joining us. Listeners, we also want to remind you to stay tuned for our Wanda's Water Tidbit at the end of our program, where we share fun and quirky trivia or information on water. So let's get started. In our discussions before, Paul and Ryan, we talked about wastewater monitoring being like a black box. What does that mean to you guys? To me, it means that a lot of uh, engineers have treated wastewater as being just a single item. It's, it's You've got bugs in the tank and you measure properties of all of the bugs, but you don't actually know which bacteria you have in your system and what roles they're playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> I would agree with that as well. And basically, we have we have a lot of process control numbers and things that we use in a lot of times they're they're accurate, but there's also times where there's other environmental factors that ultimately the the bacteria and, that are doing the work within the plant they're going to tell the the full story of what's going on. So having an insight to that black box is a very powerful thing from a process control standpoint. I love it because I've I've been to lagoon systems, activated sludge systems, and you're just sitting there knowing that there's something else that's missing. <laughs> And why the, you know, the nitrifiers aren't taking or why the biomass has died off or why filaments are showing up now when they haven't ever before. I'm excited about this. Yeah. As a micro guy, I can recall early on in my career when we were operating before we had learned the, the micro and it's very reassuring having that idea and that understanding of what's actually happening instead of that uncertainty of here's what we see and, you know, are we going to make a change or which way are we going to go with things? Ryan's micro exams are uh, really helpful. And even to to me, e- even though I'm used to looking at the bacteria and seeing which ones are present, the micro exam and, and the DNA work go together in large part because the micro exam tells you what's physically going on. And the DNA work only tells you what things are, are possible. So the two really fit together. And since Ryan and I have been working together, we've found a lot of interesting insights. And I'm hoping we're going to talk a little bit more about that, too. I, you know, I think it also has a place in that it prevents knee-jerk reactions to, to things. If you have an understanding of the microscopy, you have a general understanding of what bacteria biomass you have, I think it keeps you from, you know, flipping the switch on something or you know, wasting everything or taking the more dramatic approaches to operations that we see a lot of times when something happens. Completely agree. You know, what kind of biotechnical tests are we using? What does this look like and what are the words so that if I want to order it, <laughs> I know what to ask for? We're pretty fortunate. The medical world has really driven down the cost for biotechnology and made a bunch of tests that even 10 years ago were very expensive, cheap enough for us to use for routine monitoring. One is called uh, next-generation DNA sequencing, and the other is called quantitative PCR, or polymerase chain reaction. 
And the next generation DNA sequencing allows you to sequence millions and millions of pieces of DNA at a time. And then using a computer, you can turn those bits of information into the actual bacteria that are present in a wastewater treatment system. qPCR is a little different. It's really specific. It's more like the gold. Well, actually it is. It's the gold standard test for COVID-19 right now. Last week, the president had a qPCR confirmation that he was infected with COVID-19. So it's a very specific and very sensitive test that will allow you to detect just three or four cells in a sample. And it's really very good for checking out trends in populations like the nitrifier population over time because it's relatively inexpensive and you get the data back within hours. That's cool because you usually in wastewater or even water, we're sending out samples and finding out two or three weeks later what's happening in our system. So you're saying this can be back in like hours? Like are we talking half a day, a day? So for qPCR, a lot of times people will send us samples that we get at 1030 in the morning. And if they need data back by five o'clock, we can get it. It can be that fast. Yeah. And the next generation sequencing, it, it can take 24 to 48 hours to get the data back, but you can get it back in a time frame that's, you know, really relevant for operational reasons. Is it the next generation then that tells me I have aerobic bacteria, the nitrifying bacteria, you know, and their names, their genuses and species and so forth? Or what kind of does that look like? What does the data look like? Sure. So the, the data looks exactly like that. You get a list of the different genuses of bacteria that are present in a sample. At this point, most technologies, it's kind of iffy to be certain about a species, but you generally don't need to know the exact species. It will be able to identify any of the nitrifiers that are present, both the AOB and the NOB populations. It can identify all, not all, but a good portion of the filaments. And, and the reason not all is part of the reason Ryan and I are working together is that there are a lot of filaments out there that have not been identified genetically yet. And we're trying to put that together, but it'll also look at other nutrient removal like phos phosphorus. It can, you can detect the uh, phosphate accumulating organisms. And it even shows you some pretty fascinating things like in a well aerated aeration basin with a, uh, you know, significant DO, you will still find obligate anaerobes bugs that will die in the presence of oxygen that are buried inside the bits of flock. The flock really protects the uh, inside organisms from that oxygen. That's pretty cool. And I've seen that several times and even at WefTech where they're talking about the anaerobic portion of the flock not being touched. So that's cool that the DNA is showing that as well. So it tells you it's there, but does it also tell you how much you have? You can get an idea of the relative portions of the different populations. And it's, it's really good to track trends over time because there are some inherent challenges to the technology. So the, the piece of DNA that we look at that we use to uh, basically as a fingerprint for each bacteria, mm -hmm. let's say some bacteria have one finger and some have five. So if you're just counting fingers, so to speak, it's hard to get an exact relative number of each population, but if you stick to the trends, you can see uh, really good, consistent results. And, and that's one of the that was one of the first questions that when when Paul and I began to work together is we're putting together a database where we're we're looking at the different filaments and looking at that read percentage. And over time, if we get certain samples where there's a lot of filaments and you know it it may not be recognized as a filament. That DNA comes in and it's pretty powerful as a tool to, to help identify 
But some of those other, you know, when you look at the abundance and what you see under the microscope, it's not always a complete apples to apples scenario in terms mm-hmm. of what the abundance is visually versus what the DNA is based on like he is the explanation of you know, some of them have multiple DNA markers. So from a from a correlation standpoint, looking at the micro versus the DNA, it's almost a little bit more of a who's there. We have had a fairly good so far, you know, with, with the abundance, but there are some things that can throw that off that it's not always 100% apples to apples. Well, so, and a, every system is unique too, correct? So a, a great example to address what Ryan's talking about is uh, sphrotalus natans, you know, S natans, everybody talks about that as a filament. And it is a filament, but it's a low DO filament. And if you increase the DO, the S natans is still there. It just shifts from being a filamentous form into being uh, free individual cells that's out there in the literature. So the DNA tells you what is possible and the microscope tells you really what helps you decide what's really going on. Yeah, I agree. We've seen that some of the, some of the split samples that we've done, you know, as, as we're putting this database together, you know, certain plants that tend to have certain filaments at times, it's almost as a precursor because some of the, a lot of the genus, sometimes they may be grown in a filamentous form. Sometimes they grow in tetrads, you know, other variations. So it, it does give you a little bit of insight. One of the, you know, a particular plant that has type 0961 occasionally, one of the genus that we are pretty confident that measures with that, even when that filament's not seen high in the microscope, we still see the reeds on the DNA. So it's, it's a precursor. It's always just kind of waiting below the surface for that particular filament to come on. They're kind of like uh, opportunistic then, is what you're saying. They're there, but they're not showing themselves until the perfect time for when, you know, the aerator goes down, you know, or the motor or something like that. Or you get a big slug of something new in the influent, you know, a lot of fat soil and grease or something. Yeah, it, you, you are what you are, what you eat. So, you know, whatever comes down, if it gives that bacteria competitive advantage, it's going to win. And when the bugs win, it can, it can be cool to look at under the microscope, but it's definitely not on the other end when the sludge isn't settling and there's foam everywhere and, and all that good stuff. Yeah. Well, and I like too how we're knowing more about the filaments tells you what kind of things are actually going on operationally. Like you said, some of them, you know, low DO. So if it pops up, you know, there's some DO issues. Uh, others, they're just too old sludge age and they'll come out, come out. So I like the combination of the two. And I would also say adding the operational data. So if you're trending all three of these together, you have a baseline. I think you've got some really powerful information. Long term, I would love it if operators would help share more of their operational data with us. That's been one of my, my biggest <laughs> asks. And, uh, because, because you're, you're absolutely correct. We can start putting the three together. You know, people are talking about machine learning these days. This is a great opportunity for machine learning. When you start to see a specific part of the bacterial population shift and you see something going on operationally, then you're like, Oh, I better do something about this now before it gets out of control. Mm-hmm. Zuglio, zuglio bulking is a, a big one. So we work with industrial customers a lot. About half of my customers are in industrial, half are municipal. And then there's some cats and dogs in there. 
<laughs> industry in particular, well, not real cats and dogs, but in the industry okay, in particular. Okay, I was going to say, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but Edu- the, educated cats and dogs. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> the industry in general, they have zucleo bulking, but it's not caused by the bacteria zuclea. It's caused by another one called thyra. When you see the thyra numbers start going up, you can tell someone's getting ready to have bulking problems and they're going to lose space in the clarifier and start having stuff overflow. We can see the thyra going up over time. And in fact, we've, we've even developed a qPCR test specific for this for a couple of clients. And it goes back to again, you know, older sludges, they need to waste more to knock it down to prevent the bulking problems. And we sometimes have a challenge convincing them that we, that we can actually see this and they, they need to do what we're suggesting. Yeah. That they are as a, uh, Zuglia bacteria morphotype. So there's six recognized species within the Zuglia genus, as well as six species in the Theora genus. And they all look the same, you know, under the microscope, but having that, having that ability to have that read is useful. And one, and one of the things with Zuglia or slime bulking that we're talking about is it's one of the instances where your 30 minute settling test can go up but you actually need a higher mixed liquor concentration. You need to lower the F to M, which is actually counterintuitive. So a lot of people see, oh, it's not settling as well. We need to waste more. And if you have yeah. a lot of those yeah. organisms and it, you, you end up creating a cycle where you're going the wrong way and you're actually encouraging the, the growth of what you're trying to avoid. I think that that's the twist that I like where you know, here we've done the things that have always worked and the operational changes that have always worked in the past. And now we add this on and we're like, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't do that. It makes for better choices, I think. But it is a switch, you know, for from an operator to go, hey, I always know if I just waste here, everything will be fine. And then two months later, it's still not fine. So I think this, you know, these tools here could make an operator's life a little less stressful. <laughs> <laughs> to say well i, I think I, I agree i think i think in general it's it's just it's just nice to have a diagnosis and have an idea of what's going on and, and based off of that decision now some plants you know a lot of times if there's a problem it's reoccurring so a lot of it's guesswork and in a lot of cases if it's the same problem and it's reoccurring plants can get by, but I don't know if it's necessarily good practice to always assume that because you had a problem at one point in time that it's the exact same problem, you know, as you did before. You go to the doctor, they give you a diagnosis and they say, hey, here's what you have. And then having that information allows you to make those operational decisions. And and another thing is you have to look at it based off of you know, this is wastewater. There's always going to be septicity. When we make changes, every plant's going to be different in terms of how it can handle the hydraulic loadings and the clarifier and everything settling out. So the the point of urgency to make changes can, can vary. So every plant having that idea of when to act is always a very useful information because what you don't want to do is you don't want to get some information and make a change that you don't necessarily have to. And it starts creating an unstable environment where things are changing quicker and you're kind of chasing around rather than having more of a stable sludge age and kind of letting the bacteria adapt on their own. That's more than two or three months later (laughs) happens. Yeah. Sorry, Paul. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If, but if you have data, if you kind of know what types of 
bacteria are in your system before you make a change. And then you check what bacteria are in your system after you make a change. You can actually tell, did the change I make have the impact I wanted? And you'll have real evidence of it. And so, so that sometimes can help you figure out whether or not your change was helpful or not sooner. So you don't have to wait two or three months. You can make a change, wait a sludge age, however long that is for your system. Usually it doesn't even take that long, but or wait a couple of days, take another sample and, and send it in and see if the, if everything is headed the right direction. So we've got a Muni group in California that is in, in a college town. And when college started back up a couple of days, well, at the beginning of September, they ran into an upset condition. They hadn't had this, the same amount of loading since March, and they were trying to figure out what's going on and whether or not their bio-augmentation plan was helping. So they took us a bunch of samples uh, at the very beginning of the bio-augmentation and then about a week later and could see the change in the health of the mixed liquor went up and had a better uh, set of biomass bugs to deal with the ammonia issues they were facing and the flock was coming together nicely. So they could actually see that in the, in the genetic information. And that's, that's one of the things that we see fairly often in, you know, some of the, you know, tourist areas and schools and things like that is a lot of plants have success. If the, if you know that there's going to be a major increase in your organic loading rate to slowly build that mixed liquor population up. So you have the bacteria in the system ready and available there to do the work and to do the treatment. A lot of what you grow is dependent on the bacterial growth rates. And the higher the oxygen uptake rates and the more they're, the faster they're growing, the more likely you are to get the zoolia types and dispersed growth. And a lot of the different filaments also compete very well, you know, just on the soluble organic and organic acids. So, you know, sometimes if, you, if you're able to prep for those events, that can be a very useful thing rather than having a going into it with a very low mixed liquor. And then the bugs are going to naturally try to get to that mixed liquor concentration that they want to based off of the loading. So having that information ahead of time is always is always useful. We have a plant that we operate that's got about 50 percent loading from a paper mill. And, mm -hmm. you know, we don't see the BOD result for five days later from what they send us. But we certainly do see instead of one blower running, there's five blowers running when the BOD coming to the plant is tripled in in the concentration. But if we get that if we get that phone call and we get a heads up from them that hey, we just had a major spill, that gives us a chance to react at the plant and we can take the wasting rate down or off and kind of let that mixed liquor build up because when you're getting hit with a slug load, if you're continuing to waste rapidly, it's just, it's just that same scenario. The bugs are always trying to get to that concentration that they need to in order to treat the waste that's coming. So in some of those instances, it's taking that wasting rate off for a short period of time just allows the, the growth rates of the bacteria to slow down and, and grow better, better bacteria, better flocks. I say those Go slugs ahead. from the, from the pulp and paper industry, they're no joke. Like, uh, if they've got a dump fiber, your BODs, Triple is sometimes the nice end. It can really change dramatically overnight. So I feel for that system. <laughs> no, I, I agree. There's there's industrial plants and there's municipal plants, but then there's also 
you know, a municipal plant that's treating a high amount of industrial waste, if you look at the, uh, you know, the DNA and, and the microscopy, you know, it's, it's technically more of an industrial plant because that's what's coming down to the, uh, to the plant. And, and that's, that's the type of food that the bugs are getting to grow on. So, so I've, I've actually had clients send me in samples of blind. They don't tell me what it's from. And a lot of times you can just look at the, the DNA results and say, Oh, that's a muni. Uh, this one's industrial. I got tricked recently by oh. a, by one sample though. I said it was munis. I said, this is a really weird municipal sample. It turned out it was a, a sulfite paper mill. And the reason oh, okay. that the reason I was so wrong is in their lagoon system, they had a whole bunch of Canada geese and you could pick up the fecal contamination from the Canada de- geese in the wastewater. And it made it look like a municipality. Oh, no, you know, that is interesting because I've yeah. I recently talked to uh, a, a lagoon system that we're dealing with you know, the migration and all the geese <laughs> in the water yeah. and turning up their, uh, you know, BODs going out the door. So that's a good point. One of the other things that we're kind of finding is, is we're putting together this database on some of the filaments versus the DNA. We are seeing some correlations in between different types of, different types of wastewater industry and some of the genetic differences within the different filamentous morphotypes that we look at. For example, like when we're looking under the microscope, we have, there's about 20 different filaments that we identify, but the the term filament, we're identifying it by its morphological traits, by what it looks like. Now, over 40 years of time, there's been a pretty strong correlation between those types, those morphotypes and the associated causes. But when you go a little bit deeper into a genetic level, if you look at a, a morphotype like Thiothrix, there's probably at least a dozen genus and within those genus, possibly hundreds of different species that can resemble that filament. When we're IDing, both Paul and I are both of the same mindset that I want to be, if we do micro, I, I want to be very forthcoming on, on what we're doing. We're identifying a morphotype that's fitting these different characteristics. And these characteristics have been proven over time to to be linked to these causes. But we are not identifying what the actual bug is. So one of the things that we've done on our reports, it used to be italicized in terms of like anything that was a genus would be italicized. And from the micro, we're not we're not able to make a genetic identification. That that'd be kind of tricky to do under a microscope. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So so on the report, it always bothered me that you know we're writing in italics and it's thiothrix can be a morphotype and it can also be a genus. So if we're referring it to it as a morphotype, then it's not italicized. Now if we're referring it to it in terms of Here's the DNA test that came back, and we had a 8% read of Thiothrix uh, genus. Then that would be where it's italicized. I know a popular question a lot of operators have is managing nitrification, denitrification. You know, everyone knows Nitrosomonas and Nitrobacter, but what are some other bacteria that 
they should be looking for for that if they're doing the DNA sequencing. I'm always fascinated because everyone immediately jumps to nitrobacter being the the nitrifying bacteria in wastewater treatment systems. And it's mm-hmm. pretty it's pretty rare that I see any significant levels of nitrobacter. Uh, most often the nitrifying bugs, the 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 ones that are specifically nitride oxidizing oxidizing bugs are members of the genus Nitrospira. And it's a really interesting genus. It's very challenging to grow in the lab, which is part of the reason why everybody assumed Nitrobacter was doing the work. They could grow Nitrobacter, they could grow Nitrosomonas, and they could see them on a plate or see them in a flask. And Mm -hmm. the Nitrospira, they they were challenging to grow and isolate so people could characterize them. And what's truly interesting is that a good, not well, a significant portion of the Nitrospira genus is not just a nitride oxidizing bacteria; they're also ammonia oxidizing bacteria, and they they are called complete ammonia oxidizing bacteria or comamox, sort of like uh, anamoxin for okay. anaerobic ammonia oxidation. So those are the the primary ones, but in certain situations, you do see some kind of oddballs. I was talking with someone recently about a reactor that was able to nitrify at 45 to almost 50 degrees Celsius. So say 115 to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And everybody's like, oh no, nitrification won't happen. They looked and it turns out it was an archaea, nitrososphera that was doing the ammonia oxidation. So you, you find interesting situations. Like that. that must be really cool. <laughs> In my mind, I'm like, yeah. oh, finally answers. You know, that, 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 that's the thing that always bothers me is I always want to know the root cause and the answer. So diving yeah. down a little, a little deeper. And then you've got these hard and fast rules that everybody thinks of, like nitrification won't happen above 40 degrees Celsius. And you find the exception to the rule and find out the answer. For me, it's a big curiosity game. I love looking at the data. Yeah, every when we teach uh, wastewater uh, process control and microbiology, just about everything is that's usually this way, but sometimes it's not. So it's I'm of the same opinion with Paul, where it's it's interesting to kind of see those other other areas. One of the major things with the the nitrifying bacteria and where the where the DNA can be helpful is that the you know, from from a microscopy standpoint, we can see nitrosomonas under the scope, and we can see nitrobacter. And nitrobacter is fairly insignificant, as Paul stated, to the overall process. It always surprises me how low the reads that we actually get off of the nitrobacter are. So if you have nitrosomonas, it's doing the first stage. It's doing that ammonia to nitrite conversion but mm-hmm. necessarily know if you don't see nitrobacter, you don't necessarily know, you know, what those populations are. And if they're, you know, how how much of a buffer is there for nitrification, things like that. We've had some issues where there's plants that have nitrite lock, where they're just doing that first part where they're converting the ammonia to nitrite. And, you know, we send a sample to the lab to see, well, hey, is this, are these guys even here that are doing the second step? This one particular case, it turns out, yeah, they were here. So, okay, so we don't need to add anything. We have what's here. There's something that's inhibiting them. 
a lot of the nitrifying bacteria, they can go into, they almost go dormant. They don't always necessarily die if the conditions are not right. Sometimes with the expressions, they just kind of keep their mouth closed and they don't, they don't do what they're supposed to do. So if there's sulfide that's too high or some of the odd number carbon, um, organic acids, they can be known to inhibit, especially that second stage of nitrification. So in this one particular instance with the nitrite lock, having that data and being able to know, okay, we have a stable population of bacteria that are going to oxidize that nitrite to nitrate. Now it's just a matter of getting the conditions right. So we focused on some of the septicity in the, in the front of the plant and added some ferric chloride to precipitate some of the sulfide. And very quickly, the uh, the ammonia or the full nitrification came back around. And it was it, it's it's one of those studies where rather than adding the bacteria blindly, you know, having that peace of mind and kind of knowing, okay, they're they're here, we just have to fix. And there's a reason why they're not catching. I've seen but, similar where we're working with a facility. They're sending us samples to track nitrifiers routinely on a weekly basis, and and uh, they lose nitrification. They want to know if they've got to spend $20,000 to restore nitrification. They send me a sample and I say, no, the nit- nitrifiers are there. You need to make these changes to the system, sort of like Ryan was saying, and it kicks back off. So you can definitely see the technology working there. One thing, Paul, I don't know if, I don't know if you see a lot of it, but one, a lot of the plants that supplement uh, nitrogen you know, the goal, if you, if you add excess nitrogen, you're just going to create excess nitrification, which has an oxygen demand associated with it and a risk of denitrification. So depending on what each individual strategy is, if you're supplementing nitrogen and you're able to quantify what those nitrogen, what the nitrifying bacteria population is, if you have a lot of nitrifiers, you know you have enough nitrogen, so you may be able to cut back on the urea or whatever nitrogen supplement that you may be using. This this is a little off, off track, but one of the other things that we, we've seen a lot of times with plants that are adding nitrogen is they don't test for nitrate. They only test for ammonia. So there's been a handful of times where we've seen plants that are just adding tremendous amounts of, of nitrogen and they, they just add it until they see an ammonia residual. Well, if you yeah. just keep adding yeah. that, eventually you're just going to keep growing more and more nitrifiers. So if you test for the nitrate and you know that you have nitrate there, then you know that you've got nitrification. Then you have, if you have excess ammonia, that's what's going to happen is it's, it's going to lead to nitrification. So for any plants that are adding nitrogen, you always want to make sure that you're looking at the nitrite and the nitrate in addition to just the ammonia, because if the plant's healthy, it might be able to take a lot of nitrogen and, and nitrify it, and you end up spending a lot of money on the supplement as well as the cost for the aeration and alkalinity and everything else that's used in the process. Yeah. I've definitely seen some clients like that where we told them, you need to back off on the ammonia. And they're like, really? We can do that? Yes. Feel free. Save yourself a little money. <laughs> yeah. At least with that. Cool. Now, another area that's um, that's interesting is for the biological phosphorus removal. Getting an idea. A lot of what we've, even 15, 20 years ago, what 
you know, what is, you know, the, the knowledge that we've learned in that area has come a long way. For plants that are doing biological phosphorus removal from a, from a microscopy standpoint, you know, we have the, the Nisir positive stains and you no, know, we, we correlate it and I think we're fairly accurate, but there's also PAO types that don't fit that classical, what you see under the microscope. A really good example is we have a plant that had very high read of tetraspira, which is, it can, it can resemble a nosticoida filament type, but it's also a PAO. So we had a plant that we were wondering, well, we're getting super low numbers. We're not seeing traditional PAOs. And, but we have a lot of this nosticoida filament. And then we found out it was the tetraspira, which is actually a PAO. So that was an instance where a plant was actually getting biological phosphorus removal due to so much septicity in the influent where the, the storage and the release of orthophosphate was actually occurring in the collection system that that was acting as a selector. So there is no designated anaerobic aerobic zone. But you happen to be growing these filaments that are PAOs and, you know, it, it worked really well that, you know, it was a matter of, hey, we know we have a lot of these, but our phosphorus numbers are good. We just got to keep an eye on these filaments. And if they get out of control, we can chlorinate or we can do something else. So having that, that knowledge and, and, and being able to, you know, make those decisions and, and having the answer instead of having those theories is always a powerful thing, in my opinion. Well, and I, I know there's been times where I've you know, looked at the data. I'm like, am I crazy? This isn't what we've been told <laughs> it was supposed to work. So to me, it was really reassuring to learn that, you know, some of these other bacteria are playing or have a part in these treatment plants as well that you wouldn't expect. Like you said, you know, we, we talk about the nitrosomonas and nitrobacter because those are some of the easiest to see. But, you know, they could have brought a whole host of other friends that are doing the work. And they're just kind of hanging out or not there at all. I, I think that's a big, I, I think that's a big shift. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the, uh, I think the, the nitrifying, you know, that, that from, uh, from the DNA standpoint, I think it's very powerful. There's one instance we had a lagoon and they just, they're having all kinds of trouble nitrifying and they were adding tremendous amounts of nitrifying bacteria supplementation. And we did the DNA test and they just weren't catching. And so, guys, we got to get the house right in order for these nitrifying bacteria to grow. You can't just add them and if they're not catching. So having that information is very useful in, in that particular case. This one happened to be a, a lagoon system. It was also septicity related where the uh, the water from the uh, the treatment plant, it entered an un- unaerated uh, cell prior to the cell that had the aeration uh, for the lagoon. What was happening is there was just so much septicity occurring in that first cell that it was inhibiting the nitrifier. So what we ended up doing is we changed the flow dynamic of the plant and we bypassed that septic primary cell and went straight to the aerobic cell. And within about five or six days, the nitrifiers came around and the plant was back in compliance. So Using all the different tools available, it definitely can help give you a better instance of everything to look at in a lot of a lot of cases. Well, I, I wanted to ask too. I mean, we've talked about a lot of good case studies and things. What has been the craziest thing that you've seen? <laughs> um, <laughs> and Paul starts laughing. <laughs> the 
a couple. One, so the the sequencing, the, the fraction of sequencing reads that were assigned at the IRA one time was 60%. I'm like, that that was kind of shocking that you could have one bacteria in the system so dominate. And they were having serious clarifier issues. And then another was, I just made an offhand comment in passing when handing over data to a client. I was like, oh, by the way, you probably have some microbially, microbially induced corrosion in your plant somewhere. It's like, how did you know that? We're having them do the repair job today. So, you know, we see a, a lot of stuff that may not even really have to do exactly with the wastewater treatment itself, but still has impact on the plant operations. Very cool. I got to say from, um, you know, you know, going to different plants and everything, if anybody's witnessed the uh, volcano foam over of the erasing basin, it's a pretty spectacular thing from, from <laughs> that. I just, I, I remember we had, we had an instance where it was, it was, I can't remember if it was microthrexia, nicardia, volcano, and the, uh, the building is inside. And I just remember the, the foam just kept overflowing in, from the inside on, onto the, the walkway outside. And they had a poor guy that was, he was sweeping up the, he was squeegeeing the foam. And we just knew this thing wasn't going to stop. And, and he's just, trying to keep up with it and said, Hey, you got to, it's time to just close the door and clean the building up when it's done. Because until we get the, uh, the loading under control, you know, or we get some defoamer or whatever the, the case is, it, it's not going to get any better. So it's just, yeah, that, 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 that foam over is a pretty spectacular thing. Hopefully no one ever has to actually see it. We did have a plant that had a, a foam over uh, the Nicardia volcano. And when they do the GPS, the navigations for like your satellites and everything, they take the, the pictures. And it just so happened at the, at the time that they took the uh, picture of the wastewater plant, the foam was boiling over and going off onto the ground. So that picture was taken and it was put on the internet. And about five years later, somebody goes and they didn't realize that it wasn't in real time. So they get a call that, you know, the regulatory agencies out there and everything that, hey, this plant's having foam go all over the place. And it, you know, it just so happened they, they took that picture five years ago when they had that event. So it was just bad timing for the, for the uh, picture. Yeah, that's the wonderful thing about wastewater. There's always something uh, new to see. If I could quick add one one final thought, oh, yeah. um, one of the things I, that we're doing is basically in, in terms of the microscopy. A lot of historically DNA, I, I wouldn't say historically, but and it can be viewed as a competition where one versus the other. Where I, I think that the two of them in in tandem, if used properly, can help to to provide a a, a really good picture of what's going on. Now. We, the microscope is always going to remain relevant in terms of what you're looking at in terms of the flock characteristics, the dispersed growth. How are those filaments impacting the flock? Higher life form organisms, rotifers, flagellates, those types of things. The general health of the bacteria, the filaments. When a filament dies, it loses its DNA. That's actually how we were able to get a very good theory on one of the 
type 0, 2 on end types of filaments, we had an instance where we had side-by-side plants and the, the chlorination was not applied equally and they were over chlorinating one and, and not chlorinating the other one enough. And the only thing that really stood out on the DNA was, hey, we've got this one genus of bacteria and we've got this filament that's healthy in this one and it's not healthy in, in the other. So in terms of, in terms of that, that health and also a lot of the, the different genuses, as we talked about, they can grow in different forms. So it can be looked at as a precursor, but it can also be looked at as, you know, at, at what point is it causing a problem? So I think the microscopy, one of the things that we've also done is we've some of the different types, we've combined them just because we know what we're learning with the DNA and what we're learning with the genetic information. For example, in, in, in my opinion, we have a Thiothrix 1 and a Thiothrix 2. There's actually seven species within Thiothrix, but then there's also a huge amount of, gen, of different genuses that could potentially fall within that type. So from a practical standpoint, when the only difference between the ID is diameter, one of the things that we're looking at doing is we're just making, instead of calling it Thiothrix 1 or 2, we just call it Thiothrix. And then there's not as much time involved in kind of nitpicking and, oh, is it a 1.5 micron diameter? Then it's Thiothrix 1 or 2. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's the same, it's the same cause and the same type. So. What we're trying to do is, is simplify that to kind of make the micro more more scalable and, and something that, that can be easy, more easily used. That's awesome. Anything that makes technical data easier is always a good thing, yeah. I think. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay. We're kind of ending, getting close to the end of the time. How about we, we talk a little bit about the Wanda's tidbit? And I, I hope you guys have had a chance to kind of look at that as well. Have you ever been a person that skips rocks? Or tries to skip a rock across the water? So I grew up spending every summer out on the lake. And we had a a, a brick patio down by the water. And the brick Mm -hmm. was always flaking off. And those little flat chunks of brick were great for skipping across the water. Awesome. Awesome. I I remember, you know, when first trying it. And because I was even a nerd as a kid, I'm like, hmm, throwing it in perpendicular doesn't work. A little shorter angle, <laughs> trying to, to master it. And there, you know, other people are just doing it. And I'm like, crap, I couldn't figure out the math. Because <laughs> I knew if I could figure out the math, I could figure it out. I, I think, it, what are some of the key things you're looking for, though? The flattest rock? That's got to be one of the things. It, it's it's almost like a flat rock. It's kind of like the, the density as well. You, you, you don't want it to be like a piece of steel, but you need it to have <laughs> some mass. Otherwise, it's not going anywhere. Uh, yeah. if you want to get good distance on it. And then also it always seemed like spinning that thing as hard as I could would really help. It was some funny wrist flicking motion to get it together. Yeah. It's kind of a, kind of a sidearm type of a frisbee toss. I think I'm trying to remember back. I think if I had more than like five, I was always pretty happy that, that that was a pretty good one. You know, sometimes it's two or three and you know, it was, it was always blamed on the rock selection. You just don't, you don't have the right rock. It's not, it's not the guy throwing it. It's the, the, the rock. <laughs> yeah. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the, there's a very lovely physics paper, uh, written by Tad, uh, Truscott, Jesse Belden, and Randy Hurd, and they agree with you guys, except for they did the physics on it. Oh, cool. And the, everything you're talking about, you know, 
that spin, flatness, the density of the rock. But they also mentioned, you know, just getting that, the angle from the surface of the water as small as you can. What, what I didn't know was that there were naval gunners back in like the 18th century that would use the same tactic to skip cannonballs across to other ships. They, some of them were getting like 30 skips with a cannonball. Wow. So I'm like, well, crap, I'm going to have to change my defense of my rock then. <laughs> yeah. I can do it with a cannonball. So I guess yeah, that low I, angle, that low angle must really help. Yeah. I think there were, they were like two degrees. Wow. That was a lot of intuitive math back then. But guess what the Guinness world record is for, uh, skips. I don't think I ever got more than a five or six. I I got oh, maybe I, two myself. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. well, there's this guy who's Kurt Steiner, who's verified 88 skips. Wow. <laughs> I, I hope they used a camera or something to track that one. <laughs> Me too. I'm like, yeah. holy cow. Did that just like make it all the way across the lake on this perfect day? Anyways, I, I now have uh rock skipping envy because <laughs> I, I, I can only get like two myself. <laughs> Oh, it's a skill. But we'll get you practicing. There well, you go. <laughs> throwing stones is more productive than getting stoned, right? <laughs> so you got there that you going, go. right? There you go. <laughs> I mean, you're around aeration basins all the time, right? So just skip it off of that. <laughs> get practice. Uh, yeah, yeah. See if you can hit the operator on the other end. Like, well, yeah. hey, why, where did this rock come from? Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to promote that to reduce any liability. <laughs> But it sounds funny to me. That could be bad. That could be be hard on the equipment and everything. That yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want to get any ground up in anything. Well, I have really appreciated your guys' time today. The information that you've shared, Uh, I hope it's useful uh, to the listeners as well because there's answers out there. You know, for so long, operators have been kind of operating in the blind and having to operate by the art or the feel of it. But I'm excited that there's more data and more help, you know, answers to why it's happening. So I, I really appreciate your guys' time today, Paul and Ryan. We look forward to hearing from you in the future. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast, brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad-spectrum line of biostimulant and nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.